Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn now to that passage that Patrick read for us. It's found in John chapter 3, if you turn there. John chapter 3, and again, if you'd like to use the Bible, it's provided for you. That's page 888. 888, John chapter 3. John 3. Now, as you're turning there this morning, I heads up, I, rumor says something may be happening in our area tomorrow. There's a rumor out about that. And for the life of me, I'm supposed to make an announcement about it. And I can't remember. Don't tell me there's something I can't. I, I lost it. Darla, can you help me out? Something. Give me a hint here. Okay. All right. Okay. Gum. Gum's happening tomorrow. What's Can you believe what's been going on about this? The eclipse is, of course, coming. And uh, incredible, incredible sight from the Hubble telescope. I'm not sure we'll get that kind of view ourselves. But tomorrow is going to be an amazing, amazing event. And wow, can you, can you, can you believe the hype and build up for this event? Just, it's almost bigger than the event itself. I, I heard some statistics and things. I just find it hard to believe, but I know that they're probably accurate about how many people are coming to Tennessee tomorrow. Have you heard about this? The population of Tennessee is about 6.7 million, but tomorrow it will be 7.8 million as 1,100,000 guests are coming to our beautiful state to enjoy the uh, eclipse and, of course, the hundreds of millions of uh, dollars uh, that will be brought in because of that. And all money north of the Mason-Dixon line is greatly appreciated down here, and so we're glad to have that money come. There is going to be a downside to this. I read an article this week about what it's going to mean for productivity in the United States tomorrow. Productivity, they're expecting there will be a $700 million loss in productivity tomorrow in the United States because of the distraction of employees and sickness that they couldn't make it into work. $700 million. But then I thought, well, you know, it is a Monday after all, so let's call it 500 million, you know, because there's, there's a lot of loss of productivity on Monday, any Monday. Going to be a boon for rentals for hotels. Nashville, downtown, very nice hotel. Room during the week rents for $300 a night. But tonight, $1,200 for that room. I have a brother. My brother lives in South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, which is right in the path of the 100% of the eclipse. And in Greenville, South Carolina, I was reading about a four-bedroom home, sort of on a hill, but four-bedroom home that is renting for $3,000 a night. $3,000 a night. I I didn't think my brother would ask that much for that, but you know. <laughs> but the one that takes the cake for me is, of course, right here in Tennessee. 
Clarksville, Tennessee, where you can have a couch for $500. You can sleep on the couch for $500. Absolutely. Well, I want you to know, if you'd like to enjoy the eclipse, you can come over to the Fields of Grace tomorrow for free. That'd be a great place to watch it. Only thing I'd ask, just bring the pastor a moon pie with you, okay? Bring one of those. Okay, I'd like that. So, it is going to be an incredible event. It truly is. But I've been thinking about it for a long time. That it is filled with spiritual lessons. It really is. There's been a lot that's been forecasted about what this eclipse means. A lot of people who like to write on prophecy, uh, who are very clear that they understand everything about it, have talked about the significance of this eclipse. But I really do believe there is great spiritual significance. And I think especially for us, I want it, of course, to have spiritual significance, especially as we think about what we're going to begin to focus on this Sunday morning and for the next many Sunday mornings in our time of worship. We're going to be talking about a personal reformation. This is the 500th anniversary, usually considered, having begun in 1517, of the Protestant Reformation, as it's called, the Great Reformation. And of course, you know, if you've been with us this summer, we've talked about the, the core teachings that brought that Reformation. So we had a focus on summer Reformation. But you know, all of that understanding of the Reformation is really without significance unless that Reformation of life in Christ is experienced by us personally, right? And so we want to think for these next few Sunday mornings about spiritual reformation, our personal spiritual reformation. And so this morning, I think maybe we can do that by looking at this verse of scripture and considering it under this heading that I'd like to share with you. I want to talk to you about embracing our eclipse, embracing our eclipse as disciples. And the example of embracing our eclipse is in the example of this man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He is, you could call him, the proto-disciple. He was a disciple before really there were disciples. <laughs> Amazing, we're told that before he was born, when he heard the voice of our Lord's mother, Mary, speaking to his mother, Elizabeth, while he was in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, when he heard the voice of the mother of Jesus, he leapt for joy. <laughs> That's becoming disciple at a very early age. He was the proto-disciple. He was the forerunner. He prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah and his ministry. And Jesus said of this man, John, that of all the people who have been born among men, there has never arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, when the Son of God says that there's never been one greater than you, that is an incredible 
compliment. John the Baptist. But notice, he is the example of what it means to embrace your eclipse to experience true reformation. Now, here's the context. In John chapter 3, it is a short period of time before John the Baptist will be arrested by Herod. And eventually, of course, you know, he will be executed. He will be beheaded because he has denounced the sin of the ruler at that time. But before this, he has known incredible, amazing popularity and influence. No prophet had ever appeared in Israel that had had the impact, the influence as this man, John the Baptist. But there came a day when he saw the Lord Jesus that he announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then that day when at Jesus' request, he baptized Jesus and Jesus' earthly ministry, his teaching ministry, ministry of miracles leading to his crucifixion, his resurrection, it began. But from that moment on, the ministry of John the Baptist began to wane. And the limelight turned upon this rabbi, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And so John is approached by his disciples who are concerned about his loss of the share of the viewership. They're, they're, they're concerned that people are leaving him as their leader and they're beginning to follow this man. And it is when they approach him, concerned that he is diminishing, that John makes these incredible statements that Patrick read for us earlier, found here in John chapter 3, and he is talking about his personal eclipse. He's talking about his personal eclipse. Now, I want you to notice that he embraced his eclipse, and if we truly want to know personal reformation, renewal, and power in our life, we must be also willing to embrace our eclipse. Now, I want you to notice, first of all here, that we see an example of John embracing our life's purpose. He is embracing, in this embracing this eclipse of himself, he is embracing his life's purpose. This is why he came. And so as people are turning away from him and turning to Jesus, that's the purpose of his life. He's embracing his life's purpose. John's followers are upset by this. Verse 26, they came to John. Notice this. They said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. 
Now they're worried about it, but John's not worried a bit. John's response is, this is as it should be. This is exactly right. Time and time again, what did John do? He turned the spotlight on the one that was coming after him. He said, there is one coming after me who was preferred before me. He is from above. I am not worthy even to untie his sandals. He said that over and over again. There's one coming after me. He said, I'm just the voice. He's the message. I'm just the best man. He says here, he is the bridegroom. And I rejoice to see him and to hear him. Now, what would some people say today to John's response? What would, what would be a, a modern response to what John is saying about himself. I'll tell you what it would be. There would be some so-called counselors, some so-called Christian counselors, quote-unquote, that would say, John, you have a self-image problem. Yes, John, you have a self-image problem. You need therapy for emotional trauma. No doubt this is rooted in the fact that your birth was unplanned and you were raised by elderly parents. And so your self-image has been impacted and you need help. John, John didn't have a self-image problem. He didn't have a self-image problem. Listen, his self-image, his self-image problem was not a problem. It was his power. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. And others couldn't figure him out. Who are you? Who are you? He knew exactly who he was. You see, an incredible reformation begins, folks. Listen, an incredible personal reformation begins when we know our identity. When we know who we are. When we understand who we are in relation to the great plan that God has for us, then we have a true self-identity, right? We have a true self-image when we understand ourselves in light of God's plan. You see, that may be the problem for some of us, perhaps even here today. The problem, really, and it produces a lot of terrible fruit. The problem could be for some disciple here today that somehow, some way, you've become the center of your own universe. What happens? We become the sun of our life. And we think life revolves around us. We, we view and value things as they impact us. We see everything, we value everything, we decide everything on how it impacts us. All too often, friends, we become like that young lady who, her name was Betty. She was so self-focused that it was said of her, Betty lives in her own little world bordered on the north, the south, 
the east and the west by betting. <laughs> it's just all about betting. Listen, brothers and sisters, the truth is that we must accept and we must act upon as knowing this truth and acting upon it. The reality is in our lives, folks, it's not about us, is it? It's about him. That's what John was saying. It's not about me. It's about him. Now, that doesn't mean our lives are insignificant. You see, that's, that's, that's what we have to understand. When you begin to say, it's not about me, it's about him, that's not what gives you insignificance. That's what gives you real purpose, right? That's where real purpose comes from, when we understand what our purpose is. John knew what his purpose was. Look back at chapter one, if you would, of this gospel. Look at John, and as the author John, not John the Baptist, but the disciple John of Jesus is writing this. Decades later, he writes the prologue of the life of Jesus. And here's what he says about John. Look at verse six through verse eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a, what's the next word? Witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John knew his purpose. His purpose was to recognize it's not about me, it's about him. I have come as a witness to bear witness of the true light that has entered into the world, the light of the eternal Son of God. I am not that light, he is that light. Friend, that's not a self-image problem, that's the power of knowing who you are. John's purpose was to bear witness of the light. Now, you know, last November, we had something not as radical that's going to happen to tomorrow, but last November the 14th, we had a unique occurrence here in northern and, and also in southern parts of southern America. It was the supermoon. Do some of you believe, remember this? A supermoon. And that was the brightest moon that was going to be for about over 30 years, the brightest moon. But you know, when you say the brightest moon, do you know that's a false concept? It's a false concept to say the brightest moon because the moon has no light whatsoever. The moon's just a big chunk of rock. And the only light it has is the light of the sun reflecting off of it. It does not have light, it reflects the light. It is a light reflector. And friends, that's exactly what we're to be. We're not that light, but we reflect, we bear witness of that light who has made us in his image and by regeneration is renewing us into his image. We are his light reflectors. And the only thing 
that dims the light reflecting of the moon is when the shadow of the earth, the shadow of this world, passes across between the source of the light, the sun, and the moon that is to reflect it. That's what we call a lunar eclipse. But what we are really to do, and this is an incredible image, there are many images of this supermoon, is to shine with the light of the Lord so we reflect him. This was one scene. Isn't that amazing? This, this is from Rio. How that incredible image of Jesus with his arms outstretched, illuminated by the light of the moon. And that's exactly what we are to do, is to illuminate the light of the Son of God. If we're going to reflect that light, here's something, though, that has to, we have to understand as our purpose he must increase. What? I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. That's embracing our life's purpose. But now as you listen to John saying that, he must increase. I must decrease. I want you to see, if we want personal reformation, we also have to embrace that as our life's priority. Our life's priority. Do you look at John's words, verse 30? Do, do you hear the determination in his words? Do you hear it? What does he say in verse 30? He, what's the next word? Must increase, but I must decrease. Those are those are words of determination. For all of John's greatness, listen, friends, he was made out of flesh and blood just like you and me, and it was not natural for him to decrease, to want to decrease. He had to determine that it was right, it was what needed to happen, and he was committed to it. He must increase, I must decrease. The only way the Savior could increase is if he was willing to embrace decreasing. Folks, for the Savior to increase in our lives, self's got to decrease. However, we're tempted by our three mortal enemies for that not to happen. What are our three mortal enemies according to the Bible? The world... The flesh and the devil. The world system, the world's values, morals, our flesh, that is that part of us that is not yet fully sanctified, not yet glorified, that old person, that old nature that we still drag around with us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil doesn't want anyone putting the spotlight on God because he wouldn't do it. And nothing makes him so angry. But his purpose was this. He must increase. I must decrease. 
You see, what we're told is, well, you can increase and Jesus increased at the same time. As, as a matter of fact, as you increase and you, and you get what you want, when you want it, how you want it, where you want it, and you're fully pleased when, in life, as that happens, well, that's how Jesus gets increased. I hope you don't believe that. For Jesus to increase, we must be willing in our self-life, self-determination to decrease. If people are going to see Jesus, we got to get smaller. I heard of a little girl one time, and when I heard what she said is impacted my preaching probably more than anything else that's ever been said to me in all these years. Or I've heard said, not directly said to me, though I probably needed it. This little girl was worshiping with her, at her grandmother's church. And she loved going to church with her grandmother because back over the baptistry was a beautiful stained glass of Jesus with his arms outstretched. And she loved to sit there in church and look up and see Jesus with his arms outstretched. But one time she went to church with her grandmother and there was a guest preacher who was a rather large man. And the little girl said to her grandmother, Grandma, when that man preaches, I can't see Jesus. Wow. That has been drilled in my heart, and I've thought about it so much. When I preach, do people see Jesus? Do I get in the way? But we can say that about our whole, all lives, can't we? All of our lives. Do, do I magnify Jesus or I, do I get in the way? He must increase, I must decrease. If he's going to know and show forth true glory in my life, then I've got to be eclipsed. My friends, the call of the Lord is the same for every follower of Christ. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, what are we told today? Oh, be a Christian. You don't have to deny yourself anything. You can just do what you want, how you want. Just, you've got Jesus. Just tap Jesus onto your life. That's not what Jesus said. If anyone desires to come after me, that is be my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him be eclipsed. Let him take up his cross and follow me. And when Jesus was talking about a cross in that day, he wasn't talking about jewelry, was he? No, he wasn't talking about jewelry. He's talking about an instrument of death. To deny ourselves is to die to self. What does it mean to die, deny yourself? It doesn't mean to hate yourself, abuse yourself. It means willing to die to the self-life, to crucify it. And how we struggle to do that. It's not an easy thing to die.
reality, only worshipers can embrace their eclipse. You see, it's only people who on a regular basis, like you are now, and also in your personal time with the Lord, where you see the Lord Jesus, you see how great and glorious he is. It's only people who truly worship the Lord who are willing and know the best thing is for him to have the glory. Only worshipers can do that. Embracing our life's purpose, embracing our life's priority, we must, we must do this. But also, just notice quickly, John said he was embracing a life pattern and that we must embrace that life pattern. You see, where do you see this? And notice, what did John say? He must increase, I must decrease. If you mark in your Bible, you might want to mark in the margin of that because it does not come across so clearly in our English. That is present tense. What does that mean? The sense of what John is saying is this. He must keep on increasing, I must keep on decreasing. It's present tense. It is a pattern. It's, it's daily. Daily. It's the only way you can do this. Daily. Saying, Lord, you must increase. Today, I choose to decrease. I once listened to an interview of several people who had lived to the ripe old age of 100. And it's amazing when people have lived 100 when they're uh, interviewed what they say because, you know, what have they got to prove? <laughs> and one lady, was, she was asked, how did you live to be 100? Did you, how did you live to be 100? And with a little wink, she said, young man, one day at a time. That's how he did it. <laughs> One day at a time. And I thought, oh, if we could only understand that. You can't live your life a year at a time, month at a time. You can't do this eclipsing and dying that Christ might live. You can't do that with just a one-time prayer. It's got to be daily. It's got to be a fresh daily response to Jesus who meets us every single morning, every single morning when you open your eyes, you need to know Jesus is there and what is he saying? Follow me. I like to try to think about that. I don't do as well as I should, but I like to think about Jesus every morning when I wake up. Good morning, Sam. Hope you've rested well. Now, follow me. Follow me. How our days would be transformed if we really could have that kind of attitude. Lord, I'm following you. I, I'm, I'm journeying after you. And you know what a journey with Jesus always brings? As he is increasing, we're decreasing. You know what? Do you know what that always brings? Well, you know what the devil wants you to think it brings? At, at the best, it's just... Self-denial, determination, being resolute, 
stoic endurance. Just grind through it. That's what the enemy wants us to think, that following Jesus, he increasing, we decreasing, that's what we're going to experience. But how, how that is a lie. <laughs> what is the product of a Christian seeing Jesus increase in his or her life and himself decrease. The product is the same thing that John experienced. What's the product? What did he experience? Look at verse 29. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him does what? rejoices greatly. He doesn't stand there. Not the friend of the bridegroom doesn't stand there and say, when's somebody gonna come for me? Wish I had a girl. No. If he's a friend of the bridegroom, he's standing here with a bridegroom. The bridegroom sees the bride. The best man standing right here, and he rejoices. He rejoices with the bridegroom. And that is what John is saying. The one who is from above, the Lord of glory, has come for his bride. He has come to gather out his people, and I rejoice to hear his voice. I rejoice. But this is the way it is. You see, that joy comes when you're aligned with the purpose of your creation. When, when you get aligned with why you're on the earth, why, why you're here, that's joy. To know God and to enjoy him, the Westminster Catechism says. What, what, is, the, what is the purpose of man? To know God. And enjoy him forever. To glorify him by knowing him and enjoying him. That's how God is glorified. God is not glorified by Christians who live their life like this. Wish I got to do stuff like that. Man, oh man. Can't do this. Wow, that's joyful. That glorifies the Lord. No. No. Real joy comes from knowing that in some small way, your life is lifting up Jesus. That because you, just a chunk of dirt, that the Lord of glory has saved by his precious blood and is fashioning into a vessel for him to make him known when you know that in some way Jesus is using you and you, he is increasing and you're decreasing, the result is joy. Friends, I have news for you. You know what the Lord wants you to do? He wants you to live for joy. He commands you to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. You're commanded to be joyful. You're commanded to pursue joy. The Lord wants you to run 
for joy. But where is joy found? It is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in aligning yourself of him increasing, you decreasing. That's joy. After the Bible, I suppose the book that I've read more than any other book is this little book, several copies I've had, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer died in 1963. He was a pastor of a missionary alliance church on the south side of Chicago. He was a man known for his personal devotion to Jesus Christ and his quiet worship of the Lord. One time, he had a speaking engagement in Dallas, Texas. He got on the train in Chicago, and the train ride was all through the night and most of the next day, and he started journaling in his Pullman birth. He just started writing. And when he got to Dallas, he had written this. The pursuit of God. He ends every chapter with a prayer. And I love the prayer of chapter 8. That chapter is called Restoring the Creator created relationship. Restoring, reforming, we could say. The creator created relationship. And then he ends it with this prayer. And he always used the King James in prayer. Just like the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Listen, listen to the prayer. Oh God, Be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasure shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all. Though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts, though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses, I shall keep my vow made this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result... I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, even my life itself. Let me decrease that thou mayest increase. Let me sink, that thou mayest rise above. Now listen to this. Ride forth, ride forth upon me. 
as thou didst ride into Jerusalem, mounted upon the humble little beast, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And let me hear the children cry to thee, Hosanna in the highest. He compares himself to the donkey on which the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Ride forth on me, Lord Jesus, if I may but hear the voices saying about the one I carry, Hosanna in the highest. He must increase. I must decrease. Will you, this day and tomorrow, wherever you are, as you watch the eclipse, will you embrace your eclipse that you may truly shine with the light of the Lord of glory? Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed, dear friend. Let's quiet ourselves just for a moment. What's it mean to say, I must decrease? It means to say, Lord, be exalted above my dreams. Can you say that now? Have you ever given your dreams to Jesus? Be exalted above my reputation. Have you ever given your reputation to Jesus? Be exalted above my comforts. Lord, whether it's emotional, physical, be exalted above all my comforts that you may be glorified. Be exalted above my possessions. Oh Lord, my house is yours. The money I claim as my own is yours. All that I possess is yours. Be exalted above it all. I give it to you. Be exalted above my relationships. Is he first in your life, that friend? Is she first in your life, that lady? Or is he first? Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. 